Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker and Liberty Portal producer. Before we get into this podcast with Griff, I wanted to add some clarifying context to the nature of our relationship. I was one of the founding members of Zesty Beverages dating back to 2014. And in January of 2020, I left the company to pursue other interests, leaving Griff and Liberty Portal founder Henri Pellerin carrying the torch. Obviously, we're all still great friends. And beyond that, Griff has a wealth of personal and professional expertise that make him a compelling guest as we dive into these current events surrounding health, entrepreneurship, and government. In addition, you may have also noticed that Zesty Beverages is the inaugural sponsor for this podcast, and I for one could not be more grateful for their support. The team at Zesty continues to do meaningful work to promote fun and healthy living with their products, and this episode presented a unique opportunity to catch up with an old friend and colleague while simultaneously exploring why their support of this show is such a natural fit. Okay, let's get into the conversation. What's up, buddy? How are you? Wonderful. Good. Um, It was a fantastic day, and I'm over the moon to talk about these things that that we're going to get into because these are important topics that people should be aware of. For sure. Well, let's jump right in. Um, so why are we sitting down here today? What what caught your attention? A couple big things have happened in the past couple of weeks. Well, I mean, a couple of things have happened over the past 15, 20 years, but really what we've seen blossom over the last week are what I think to be two pretty big stories, um, one of which is of particular interest to this audience, I would think, or it shouldn't be too difficult to make the connection. So we recently were made aware of this pay-to-play system that Coca-Cola has been operating under. And if you look at what's been going on in terms of government subsidies for food, um, the SNAP program, which provides... 15% of Americans, their sustenance. It's about a $110 billion program. About 10% of that entire program is being spent on Coca-Cola and Pepsi products between the two of them. About 70% of that program is being spent on processed foods. We've got grain subsidies, corn, soy, um, obviously a huge seed oil consumption issue, something that wasn't being consumed, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, when, so, when people were objectively overall more fit than we are today. Sure. Arguably. Sure. So that's, there's obviously a, a clear, a clear cut issue of government interference and um, influence in a area that is, arguably the biggest public health concern of humanity's time here on this planet. Absolutely. Well, and I find it really interesting. I mean, you point out, uh, give me the percentage again, how much is spent on Coca-Cola? So it's about the total SNAP benefit program is somewhere in the $110 billion range. And of that Coke is getting about 10%. 10%. They won't, you know, they're not so they're getting $11 billion a year from the SNAP program. Between Coke and Pepsi. So effectively... Yeah these major soda brands are themselves being subsidized 
by taxpayer dollars. It's a not insignificant portion of their entire revenue. And I mean, I, I mean, think we all know that the result of a lifetime or even some consumption of, of high fructose corn syrup of, you know, all, all these ingredients is not good for you. Right. I mean, they, there was a time when they wanted to ban soda in schools. Right. So like, obviously there's the awareness. It seems like generally that this product isn't good yet. The government is funding it. There's no question that it lies at the, the heart of pretty much every metabolic disorder that we're facing right now. And, you know, a, a one 20 ounce bottle of Coke is something like a hundred times the amount of sugar a child would have gotten in a, in a year, a hundred years ago, <laughs> something, <laughs> yeah. ridiculous, something in it's, that. It's a lot. Yeah. It's not like, that's not that far off. If that number might be a little inflated, it's not that far off. Yeah. We should pull know? this up. We'll, we'll <laughs> superimpose it. But the, you know, the, the increase in the amount of sugar consumed every year by the average American has gone like parabolic. As far as I remember looking at this graph, it's pretty extreme. Um, well, and, and this this very issue plays right into the reason why you do what you do. Tell us a little bit about Zesty and the mission behind the company. Yeah, absolutely. Zesty Beverages was was founded in 2016 by Joe, myself, and a couple other folks. In you to know, be clear, he, he means me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in what is now kind of become a cliche term of the the better for you beverage space. Um, we didn't really know that that's what we were doing necessarily, but that was always the goal, right? I mean, I remember in the early days, you know, talking about what it would be like to to get bought out by Coke or whatever, you know, like that was always part of the, you know, the original sort of pie in the sky dreams that evolved into what would it be like to actually capture market share from Coke? What would it be like to actually can you know get people to stop drinking Coke? <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and you know, as much as the better for you was a was a part of the mission, it was the goal was to be acquired by some big strategic partner, right? Right. And and get a little bit of that snap money, apparently. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Just kidding about that. But um, so the, the mission as it stands now. So we we coalesced ourselves around a mission. You know, looking at what it is that we do and how we do it, we needed a guiding light. And one of the things that we could really, we could all get behind for various personal reasons um, was making, trying to make an effort to improve the standard American diet. So uh, it, was, it was 2019, I believe, when we really kind of codified the mission to unfuck the standard American diet by crafting beverages with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. And so that that little snippet right there gives you an insight into what we do and why we do it and how we do it. And how, how has it been received? Generally pretty well, you know, it depends on the audience. Um, so there are some grandmothers out there that don't, uh, don't, that maybe think the wording is a little strong. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, we've did uh, we did some, um, in-depth, in-depth interviews with some customers a couple years ago. And, uh, there was one retailer in particular who, um, said if if he or she had known that before um, he, he had agreed to carry our products, that we probably wouldn't be on the shelves. If that if that, that was your yeah. mission, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because of the foul language, yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, I guess so because I don't know how you can disagree with the messaging behind it. 
unless you know he he or she <laughs> is like an adherent <laughs> of you the know? standard American diet. I mean, I can understand how you might not like it because there's you know looking at this like just going back to what we we're talking to this pay to play system exists within the CPG ecosystem, the consumer packaged goods ecosystem. It's, it's, it may not necessarily, I mean, obviously it, it exists through this, this SNAP benefit program, but it also exists at retail. You know, we're, we're in the midst right now of trying to get some of our non-alc products into, I mean, I'll say at town pump. Um, and there are these kind of the, the nefarious practice called slotting fees. And, in order to get your products on shelves at pretty much any chain, you know, whether that's regional, national, you have to pay for those spaces. And it doesn't matter what, what your product is. Um, if your product sells out, you've bought that space for the year, they won't refill it, you know? And so it, it's a, when you look at what, like go into Town Pump, and look at what's on the shelf. I mean, there's <laughs> probably a lot of Pepsi and a lot of Coke, right? I mean, you know? yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's scary because there's not, you know, when you look at, I mean, let's, let's take away health benefit, you know, it's kind of subjective, you know, let's look at nutritional value of a, of a product. I mean, there's not a lot of products on shelf at town pump that offer superior nutritional value to the products that we could put in there. Yeah, very few, if any, maybe a banana. That you can get there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, or water. Sure. Sure. You know, like maybe, but I mean, at least not negative nutritional yeah, exactly, benefit, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, so, I mean, if I can push back a little bit, you know, from a libertarian perspective, one might say, okay, it's a free market. Pepsi and Coke have developed a great product that people love and they've earned the monopoly that they have and they they have the revenue to purchase the slotting fees and you know that is sort of an earned position for them as opposed to an unearned position the only complicating factor i guess then is this whole snap thing like yep. can you can spend snap money at uh town pump absolutely absolutely so then that kind of shifts the conversation a little bit where it's like okay are we giving these entrenched incumbent corporate multinational companies an advantage over small brands in retail? And I think the answer is yes. We're not only giving them an advantage, we are systematically dismantling the health of our, of our, you know, most valuable resource in doing, doing so. And that to me is, I mean, the bigger issue, obviously we, we do care deeply about free market. You know, that is something that we, we obviously we believe in, we support it. Nothing is, I mean, very few things more important than that. Of course. Um, but when it comes down to, you know, what the future of humanity is going to look like, you know, that is, that to me is the, the, the much, much more nefarious aspect of what's going on here. For sure. Well, and that kind of segues nicely into the second piece of news that we had come up earlier this week, which was, um, that, Pediatric doctors are now encouraging children as young as 12, 13 years old to start taking prescription drugs and potentially even resort to surgery to uh, to fix obesity issues. Is that right? Yeah, there's a bit more nuance to that. But yeah, like, explain, but, please. But yeah, you, you got the gist. So um, it's been about 15 years since the American Association of Pediatrics, 
APA, AAP, whatever. You get the, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been sort of waiting in the wings, not really issuing any kind of guidance and just sort of watching as childhood diabetes has increased about 700x. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's pretty unbelievable. Seems to be something you know? they should pay some attention yeah, to. Yeah. To the point where I think it's something like 25% of all American kids under uh, the age of 13 are suffering from type 2 diabetes. Um, 25%? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like 40% of four. all Americans. I'm sorry, say that it's again? It's like 40% of all Americans. Have type 2 diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> That's like so much worse than I ever yeah. could have imagined. Like, yeah. Why do, I, don't, I didn't know that. Like, why don't more people know that? I don't know. That's such a huge thing. I, I'm not sure why. I mean, I, but that's why we're here. That's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, I mean, it, there's, when you look at it in particular, it's like diabetes, you know, this uh, uh, pathology of in, insulin resistance, right? I mean, kind of the, it kind of underpins every metabolic disorder that we face. Um, it is certainly the underpinning of the top, six or seven ways that people are most likely to die, you know, and most of these are certainly preventable. Yeah. I mean, cancers, obesity, heart disease, you know, Alzheimer's is type three diabetes. I don't know. I mean, you might maybe have I've heard that correlation (laughs) applied lately. Yeah, Yeah. It is this, I mean, it's, it's insulin resistance of the brain in the brain. You know, it is a misfiring a you know basically a degradation of a signaling signaling pathway that um, allows the brain to normally get rid of proteins uh, to shuttle them out and they kind of aggregate and cause some weird aberrant formations and these it's uh i'm not a doctor uh, <laughs> important disclaimer no doctors in the room I'm not currently. a physician <laughs> um but I do have a many years of, of studying infectious disease. Um, I did study prion disease, which which is a central nervous system does does affect brain uh, chemistry and biology. Um, you know, these are things that I've spent a lot of time working on in professional settings, and and have a you know a fairly good grasp of how obviously degradating they are to to human populations. For sure, I mean, it's well, hard to it's hard to ignore. Well, it seems that way if 40% of all Americans have type 2 diabetes. That's amazing. And I just made another connection. My grandmother had Alzheimer's and literally every day for maybe 40 years, she drank a Pepsi, mm-hmm. at least one. You know, not to rag on Pepsi directly, a lot of brands out there, but I just made that connection. And I mean, I think I think it's it's an interesting one to at least like start to formulate some some conclusions from. Yeah. There's the, you know, obviously correlation, causation, yeah, you know, yeah. et cetera. No proof um, in the pudding, but however, uh, yeah, that, that stuff's garbage and it's, 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 we weren't supposed to, you know, evolutionarily, we weren't meant to metabolize that, you know, that form of sugar, um, in that quantity, you know, as often as we are. Yeah. Well, so what is Zesty doing to to change that right now? A couple things. Um, so, you know, when we started out, we were mostly focused on on non-alc beverages, and, and we certainly still very much are. And as we grow, my focus definitely is on solving problems in the non-alc space. Um, we have a, a unique opportunity in that we also make alcohol. And so we looked at how we can improve that space. And you know, let's take away, I get this question a lot, how I can, 
you know, really clap back on health-related issues selling alcohol. And I will, like, admit that I've had to do some mental gymnastics, <laughs> you know, over the years to, um, you know, to really understand why I feel so strongly while still um, creating something that is a drug. Um, you know, obviously, again, I think the audience of this podcast probably all agree that, you know, the legalization of drugs, you know, adults making their own choices, they're, they're going to, they're going to pursue these mind altering, you know, conscious evolving, um, you know, so oftentimes deleteriously affecting, uh, substances. However, they don't have to consume them in ways that are further contributing to any kind of metabolic disorder. And so when we looked at ways that we could improve the alcohol space, um, there are some pretty wildly successful brands out there. Um, I don't know that I can, if I need to name them or not, um, but they fall into a category called fermented malt beverages. And these are things like hard teas or, you know, like overly sweet uh, canned margaritas or, uh, you know, m bottled margaritas. I mean, you, you remember, you remember, you know, these things, you know oh, what yeah. I'm talking oh, about yeah. and everybody does. And, and these, these are called FMBs, fermented malt beverages. And, and generally speaking, I think cheerleader juice is another like good term. Uh, <laughs> I wonder where that came from. <laughs> you know, um, these, these, these are just very, uh, rich in calorie, um, high in, in, in sugar, um, beverages that are contributing a significant amount of excess sugar consumption to the population. You know, we just did some back of the napkin calcs on two of, you know, who, I mean, it's, to even call them a competitor is not even fair. We are but a blip on the radar compared to what, you know, the volume that these brands are doing. But um, two of the big ones that, that, we're, that we have alternatives for um, between their two top selling SKUs, just the two top selling SKUs, not their entire portfolio, you know, based on the volume of those two SKUs sold in 2022, it was about 50 million excess pounds of sugar consumed by the, in the American diet. That's two, two, two brand, two beverages underneath different brand portfolios. Wow. Um, so that's just, just scratching the surface. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. 50 million pounds of yeah. sugar. Yeah. <laughs> and there, and there are like dozens of these brands, you know, and, and each of these brands has like dozens of SKUs underneath them, you know, and they're selling millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of these products every year, typically to lower socioeconomic classes, you know, you'll, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the, um, highest per capita rate of twisted tea is sold over at the town pump in Browning. You're kidding. Nope. Highest per capita in the country? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sold in Browning, Montana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's quite a dubious claim to fame. Right. You know, so we look at where we can make improvements. And, you know, the sad fact of the matter is a lot of these people who are picking up a Twisted Tea, like, will probably never pick up what we're, you know, the alternative that we're offering. Um, that's... Uh, that's a hard pill for me to swallow. Um, but I can't sit idly by when we have a platform, when we have the ability to make these things, when we know we can 
it not only make them taste better, um, but offer a superior nutritional value in that I think is kind of the, you know, the, the crux of it. Like, uh, the whole point of why we do business is, I mean, we live and die by the value that we do or don't bring, you know, and humans kind of live, live and die by the nutritional value of the products they consume, you know? So there's a, a responsibility that businesses have or should have, should feel very responsible for the health of their consumers. And, and, and we do, and that's why we make these drinks. That's awesome. And, and in order to cut back on this, like 50 million pounds or contributing to that excess consumption, you guys use, uh, technically artificial sweeteners. Is that right? Or what, what, what are they? What are you using instead? Yeah. You know, it's not a perfect solution or system yet. Um, but we, we use the one that we think is close to perfect. Um, so they're typically, you know, these have been called referred to as non-nutritive sweeteners. And so these are the things like stevia, sucralose, um, ACE-K, uh, you, you know, you've seen you, you've, these, I think the you know, aspartame, sucralose, like these kind of bubbled up. These were some of the original, um, you know, sweet and low. These are some of like the original non-nutritive sweeteners. Stevia has gained a lot of popularity recently and we can get into why I think that is. Um, but the one we use is, is called monk fruit and monk fruit of all of these non-nutritive sweeteners, it actually does have, um, some nutritional value to it. And so it, it actually comes from a gourd that's native to China. Um, and it's the same family as a cucumber. And we use the juice that is just mechanically pressed and concentrated. So there's not, there's no chemical processing involved in this particular sweetener like there is in a lot of the other ones. Um, and the sweetness comes from an antioxidant. And it's about 200 times sweeter than sugar. It's the only one of all of these that has been, that there's documented human use for the last thousand years. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so these are among the reasons why we use it. Uh, you so know. It, it's got long-term safety data is what you're saying. Yeah. Relatively. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's like be honest. I mean, again, this is a product that is only grown in China. Um, why is that? China has some pretty strict rules of governance when it comes to native fauna and its removal from, um, you know, from their territories. Okay. They uh, want to preserve their competitive advantage and keep exclusivity of this yeah, amazing sweetener. <laughs> probably. I mean, sounds like you a know? totalitarian thing to do. I right. Guess. <laughs> I know. And it's, I mean, that's, you know, here's where we have to, you know, have a kind of a, make a leap of faith because, most of the um, the work that's been shown, the most of the the studies that are out there to support its safety and efficacy, you know, obviously we've they've been approved by the FDA. They all but, came from the Wuhan Virology they Lab. They all came from China, <laughs> you know. And, and so, I mean, is is are these things that I'm feeding you? Like, have I, you know, have I been marketed to successfully? Have I? <laughs> I mean. Are we I, all know, getting duped right now? <laughs> I mean, look, so much as I can tell, like, I mean, what we're using is, um, in my educated opinion, the the best of all of these alternatives in the non-nutritive sweeteners. There is a plentitude of data to suggest 
um, some pretty deleterious effects of some of these other non-nutritive sweeteners. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, when you mentioned uh, sucralose, aspartame, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, that's like got a laundry list of negative side effects yeah. attached to it by yeah. now, right? Totally. And and so what about the other ones? Well, I mean, uh, you know, the big, the big question surrounding all of them is how they are, well, there's really two. I mean, they're, what they're doing uh, to elicit an insulin response um, in the body, uh, you know, because you've got this, this pretty, it's not that complex. I mean, it's a fairly simple communication pathway between your gut and your brain. Um, and there's, uh, you know, some of these are, it's being suggested. It's not even being suggested. You can, you can look at the data here. Like there is definitely some, the wires are being crossed in your gut microbiome and its ability to communicate the good bugs with the rest with themselves is, is called quorum sensing. That is certainly being um, negatively impacted by some of these artificial sweeteners or the non-nutritive sweeteners, they call them. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that they are also kind of tricking the brain into thinking that it's, it's, it's getting, you know, this, this glucose hit, um, where, where it's not. And so that's not necessarily, but you're still getting a physiologic response. Oh, so the body still ramps up its insulin mm -hmm. response and then, but there's no sugar there for it to consume. Yeah. There's offset. Yeah. There's, there's evidence to suggest that. Okay. Um, now I don't think that there's enough long-term evidence or, you know, in terms of like randomized controlled trials to be able to pull a lot of these things or say they're not, you know, generally regarded as safe, which is, I mean, that whole generally regarded as safe thing, it's basically looking to, you know, make sure that this thing like doesn't, I mean, doesn't make you implode. You know, like there's a pretty low bar to, to get a grass certification. We have exactly the opposite <laughs> problem though. People are exploding, like I know. exploding. So, I mean, let's, let's dig into that though. I mean, because like, you know, you, kids love sweet things. Mm -hmm. Crappy foods are constantly marketed to children. I mean, you see the sugar cereals on the bottom of the shelf, right? Like we've got an issue with the way that we approach children and education and food and like how do we how do we address that right so i, I get i guess i realized that we got kind of went off on a tangent and didn't necessarily get back to um you know what we were talking about with the recent guidance from from the the apa it's all it's uh, all relevant but yeah exactly so we can kind of like tie tie this all together so um what obviously you know we we're seeing this this uh what's becoming uh, an epidemic of of just mass proportions um, with metabolic disorders, obesity, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, et cetera. So we're seeing it developing in, you know, a very vulnerable population, children, you know, children under the age of 13. So the American Pediatric Association is looking at ways to, um, you know, combat the problem. And we tend uh, or our medical system tends to want to look at intervention methods that um, continue to support the the medical system, right? So one of the things that they're looking at, or what they've they've encouraged the use of, is um, a drug called semaglutide. And you know, even before the APA guidance, you know, kind of started making the rounds, 
Um, you know, you and I were kind of like texting earlier this week and that there's the 60 minute, um, piece mm -hmm. regarding this, this drug semaglutide, uh, and, uh, it's brand name Wagovi. And we were immediately, um, you know, a little concerned because I think right from the outset, you know, 60 minutes or they're doing this piece on Wagovi and they make no attempt to hide the fact that Novo Nordis, the manufacturer of Wagovi, is <laughs> an underwriter of the 60 Minutes program. <laughs> you know? Oh, imagine that. Brought <laughs> yeah. to you by Pfizer. Yeah. So, so I was curious, you know, and, and uh, as I'm wont to do with my, my, my background in academia, I started digging around on PubMed and Web of Science and JAMA and a couple of different journals and was curious where... Um, you know, what semaglutide or semaglutide, whatever it's called, what, what these drugs are all about, um, how their efficacy has been tested, um, why they are being so widely prescribed. Um, and it was concurrently, you know, that basically like the very next day when we, we started seeing anything about the APA's guidance. So after digging into some of these, these articles, most of the evidence I could find to support its use were, were done in, in trials that the cohorts consisted of mainly middle-aged, obese white women. That um, seems to be, by and large, the demographic that they were focusing the efforts on determining if these drugs had any efficacy. Um, one study in particular was uh, looked at the use over 68 weeks and the baseline, everybody, everybody in the study started at around 110 kilos. So these are like big women. You know, <laughs> Can you convert that to pounds? I'm it's sorry. Like, I think it's like 222 pounds or something oh, well, like that. Okay. 230 pounds, somewhere wow. in that zone. Damn. And that's where they were all starting. And they went on a 68 week long mission, you know, sponsored of course by Nova Nordisk, <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, making no, there's, there's, you know, we've, we see that some of these corporations have kind of like hijacked these these public institutions of great trust. You know, when you see a peer-reviewed journal or a peer-reviewed article from Harvard Public Health or something, you assume the best generally, right? I mean, these are the things that are informing our policy decisions. So, you know, we, we assume that they're um, not being co-opted, but the like fact of the matter is they're private interests are controlling the design, um, the, they're controlling the design of the study, they're controlling the analysis, they're controlling the, you know, basically the, the way the entire studies run. So anyway, back to some of the data that I combed through, there were a significant amount of adverse events associated over the course of that 68 week period, um, something like 10%, uh, mostly all related to GI stuff, but enough to pull people out of the study. Um, the biggest, I mean, most most of the women that did in the experimental group that did experience any sort of benefits, it was between ten and fifteen percent um, loss of just pound pound, just lots of loss of pounds. You know, Seems so, fairly effective then. Yeah, I mean, but it's sixty eight weeks, and these women went from let's say two hundred and thirty pounds to two hundred and seven pounds over sixty eight weeks. 
Okay, you know? so when you put it that way, it doesn't seem that effective, does it? <laughs> you know, like when you when you look at, I mean, the control group, you know, the group that you know received the placebo, um, they also saw saw losses, not as maybe not as dramatic, but like might they have been, you know, given the appropriate in- intervention, um, you know, the the conditions under which the this particular study were done were certainly encouraging these women to live their lives under a caloric deficit, um, whether or not they, they were receiving some counseling like every four weeks, something like that, like once a month. Okay. So you're saying that there might've been like what might be called confounding variables within the study that could have perhaps made the result look a little more promising than it maybe actually was. Maybe, or just, you know, interventions that were completely ignored that, that could have, you know, shown that there's, other ways than just taking a pill. You know, we, we, we can, we, it's kind of funny that, you know, as we've developed more drugs to treat, you know, these emerging diseases, you know, we've want, we've got more medical centers, bigger medical centers. We've got, we need, you know, a new iPhone. We need more followers. We need more engagement. Like all this, like we're getting more and more. We need more and more. And yet we still continue to see more diabetes, more obesity, you know, more depression, you know, more, I mean, you name it. It's like all of the treatments, you know, for these things that we're trying to solve are just continuing to just basically feed into the complex to continue building it. So, what we what we really need to look at is how what our lifestyle interventions are because the I think the big thing that this you know the APA and granted there again it's a nuanced thing this is a document that's much longer than how it was broken down by CBS and there is a bunch of other stuff that like we could get into that is um, you know adjacent to health but not totally related um, the big the big problem is we've got doctors at the APA unequivocally stating that these are biological problems and have nothing to do with lifestyle choices. Like this is, this is right out of the guidance. And that is really dangerous to be suggesting that, that parents don't have the ability to shape the outcome of their child's health because they absolutely do. I was one of those kids. I was, you know, growing up, I, I, I love my parents. One of them's dead. He'll never hear this. My mom will probably <laughs> never hear this, but, you know, they were substance abusers um, and uh, didn't, you know, probably weren't in the best spot to be raising a child and, and certainly didn't give me the, you know, a as healthy of an upbringing as I could have gotten. And as a result, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I was not in good shape. You know, I was a unhealthy little fat kid. Um, and, you know, I thankfully like didn't have, I wasn't obese. Um, as to my knowledge, I don't know. I, I I don't think my blood work was ever, you know, my yearly physicals were, normal for a little fat kid, you know, (laughs) but, but it certainly did some, I I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't set me up for good habits going into adulthood. Um, and, and as I, 
as I grew out of my teen years and metabolism slowed down, um, my habits, you know, my addiction to sugar, to, to processed food, to fast food, to alcohol, like all of it, you know, I had no control over any of that stuff. Um, it had pretty negative impacts on my health as an adult. Um, you know, before, I mean, if we can go back a couple years, you know, when I was 19, my, my dad died and he, you know, on the, I think the death certificate says something like coronary failure. Um, he had type two diabetes at the time he was on a just range of pharmaceuticals to control all kinds of various problems related to depression and metabolic disorders. I mean, you name it, like there's numerous meds um, that he was taking when he died. Was he always sick? No. My, my dad was a third degree black belt. Um, my dad was a head contractor for a, uh, a petrol company called East Coast. They used to have gas stations all up and down the East Coast. He built like all of them along the East Coast before they went out. Um, he was a high-functioning individual, um, not without his problems. Um, but, you know, later in life, he kind of succumbed to, uh, to the things that were controlling him. Uh, that he'd had no control over. And that, you know, I was 19 when that happened. And that has absolutely shaped, you know, why I do what I do now, why I'm vocal about these things. And that was a big, big turning point for me. It took me a number of years to realize that was a turning point, right? You know, like it wasn't like I, at 19, I like flipped a switch. Um, but it certainly it plays a big role now. Um, and then more recently, uh, my ex-wife's sister's son, he developed a brain tumor. He was five years old. This was, gosh, when was this? This was in 2017, 2018 when Cody died. Um, and, you know, God bless those folks. I love them. Um, you know, Jody comes from a Mormon family. Uh, she's one of five siblings. Um, that particular sibling is very overweight, has struggled with her weight quite a bit, as pretty much everybody on that on, in her family have. Um, I watched Cody, you know, a small child with a develop a brain tumor, you know, something that, A, nobody should have to go through, but particularly watching a really sweet little boy go through something like that is really devastating. And to watch his family continue to feed him poison on a regular basis, um, that was a really, really difficult thing to watch. And, you know, cancer is driven by sugar, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, insulin resistance is the root cause of every metabolic disorder that we can totally prevent. And so watching these things, watching them hit close to home, um, and then watching them, you know, happen to myself. I mean, two years ago, I guess it was in 2021, uh, it was the last, last, uh, first time I got blood work done in a number of years. Um, the results were not good. <laughs> you know, I was... 
my A1C levels were off the charts. I was very pre-diabetic. Um, the last time I had, had blood work done was in like college before that. And I was pre-diabetic then, you know, and that was 10 years ago or something. But you're uh, older and wiser and decided, wow, actually maybe I should act on this. Yeah, at this point. exactly. So that was a turning point because, you know, I experienced it through people close to me. I was continuing to experience it in my life. And, you know, the beauty of being an adult is you're just so much better equipped to, to make those decisions um, than you were when you were a child because of, you know, essentially this nature versus nurture thing. I mean, I wasn't equipped to make those decisions as a kid because I was shown some poor habits and those traveled with me. Like, well, and you're also a child. I mean, children don't have the brain development to see long-term consequences of short-term actions. Kids are kids, you know, exactly. they, they need guidance, right? Exactly. And so then what, what is the long-term consequence of putting your child on these, these drugs that are, you know, while they're, while they're growing, these drugs that are simulating hormones, you know, these drugs that are causing, uh, you know, uh, artificial response of their physiology and, uh, you know, while, while they're developing, what's the long-term impact there versus like, giving them some, some like really robust tools to handle the world. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> you know? Well, and you made a point earlier that, you know, like a lot of the, I, I don't even want to say a lot. Some of the interventions that are, that are suggested by the system, you know, if you want to call it the, the medical industrial complex yeah. or something like that, just for a blanket term, not to be conspiratorial or anything, but you know, those aren't designed to put them out of business. Right. Like that's just contrary to basic human incentives, uh, let alone business incentives. Right. And so you think about what a person can do to optimize their health. It's very rarely the intervention that is designed by or sold by the companies that, profit off of you being ill. I mean, you know, you only make money on a pill when you're sick. Right. You know, if you never get better, you always take the pill. You're a, a, a recurring revenue center, yeah. right? And I think where this ties into the idea of being a free individual, being, you know, sort of one with libertarian principles is that you don't have a lot of control over your own life. You're not setting yourself up to be a strong pillar for anyone, yourself, your family, your community. You're beholden to these external forces to keep you alive, basically, if, if you're reliant upon some of these things. And, you know, God bless people that have issues that, you know, have to be treated this way. Like, obviously, everyone's different individuals are very unique and certain situations may require this sort of stuff. We can't speak for everybody, but I think you make a really good point that so many of these problems are preventable with lifestyle interventions, with discipline, with guidance for children that don't know any better. And it is for the betterment of all of us individually, communally, uh, globally, to take our health into our own hands and understand like you can put a bandaid on it 
with a prescription, but that's all it is, right? Being obese is a symptom of an underlying problem. What exactly that problem is, again, it's different for everyone, but I think in a lot of cases, it is simply, you know, like you said, the quality of the calories that you're putting in your body. I think people look at these, look at a easier or look at like a healthier lifestyle is expensive, you know? And, and I think that drives a lot of people away from it. I mean, really we're talking about some of the like least, I mean, it doesn't really like, you don't have to pay to exercise, right? You know, like if you don't want to, <laughs> you can do push-ups in your bedroom, <laughs> you know, like you don't have to pay to sleep well. I mean, you can get like an mattress. <laughs> We're going to bleep that out because they're not a sponsor yet. <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, but, but generally like you, th those are two things that don't really require, um, uh, much of a, a cost on your side besides the, like the time and willpower you're willing to invest in them. However, like what does it cost to, I mean, for, you know, Medicare to support a 30 or 40 year old individual you know, on metformin for their diabetes, you know, what does, what does it cost our country to medically manage, you know, one individual who would otherwise be a productive member of society? You're talking millions of dollars a year. Yeah. One in four people with type two diabetes <laughs> you know? need insulin. I mean, that's, gotta, you know, that that's expensive. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, these interventions, you know, as they were, these lifestyle changes, or lifestyle adaptations, you know, it's not like it doesn't take adding anything to, you know, your your monthly nut, you know. It, well, in fact, I, it's hacking away at inessentials. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and I think if you look at it from a from a cost to cost perspective, it's like if if you are diabetic and you're paying X amount for insulin, and I don't know how much it costs, but is there a trade-off there between well, if I can get off of the drugs, can I afford better food, right? I mean, maybe there's a chicken and an egg issue there, but like maybe it's something that's worth considering. I don't know. You know, it's certainly worth considering that we, what what's going to happen, what's going to happen in, to our society in 30, 40, 50 years when you know, we're all infertile, um, we are all dying at the age of 60 or how about this? I mean, as a, as a business owner, how about how many times a week are you going to have to field a call from a coworker employee who can't make it to work because they're getting their toe amputated because of their diabetes? You know, what's the loss? What's the, not only the loss of productivity, but the you know, the mental anguish, the physical pain associated with that as we move forward. What if, what if that's your son? You know, what, what if, what if that's, what's the cost of losing your, your mom or dad, you know, 20 years before you, you had to say goodbye. I mean, can't measure it. No, you can't at all. And so that's why I feel, you know, at the risk of, you know, coming off as preachy about this stuff. I just don't want to be apathetic about it. I mean, I just, I care. Well, and obviously, I mean, you have personal experience with it and I don't think that you even necessarily have to, to, to look at the ones around you that you, 
love and and say to yourself, well, I want all of these people to live long, healthy, happy lives and get the most out of this limited time that we have on this yeah. planet. I mean, that's that's a very altruistic thing to to wish upon your fellow humans. So, yeah. Well, so to kind of wrap things up, I mean, like what what can what can people do? You know, what can people do to like to head this off or to turn it around maybe? I mean, like let's, you know, my diet, it's not going to work for, for the next person necessarily. If you're thriving, you do whatever you, you want. But I mean, here's some, how about something really easy? Like put your phone away for an hour before you go to bed, you know, don't pick up your phone for the first hour you're awake. Like start there. <laughs> you know, I mean, like big things are, you know, really just made up of lots of little things, you know, start, start measuring and managing the, the little aspects of your life like that. I mean, you're on a, on a pursuit of, of perfection, right? You know, you're never going to achieve it, but if you, if you pursue it, you'll achieve greatness, right? So little things, I mean, get some better sleep. You know, make sure, make sure your phone's away when you go to bed. How about that? <laughs> Those are great starting points. I actually just thought of another one. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember where I heard this. I mean, if I had to guess, it's probably Huberman Lab sure. podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's Shout God out to Andrew him. Huberman. <laughs> yeah. When I get some shit from that from uh, my roommate, thinks I like worship this guy. And, you know, rightfully so, if it's the case. Um, if you, uh, I think it's like if you take a 10 or 20 minute walk after your meal, it has like tremendous metabolic effects, like for the better. Um, I'm not sure if it matters what you're eating, you know, to get those effects. I don't think it does, um, but it'll improve the situation. Well, certainly being outside is going to, you know, give you a bit of a, bit of a boost, a bit of a buzz, you know? I mean, I think, how about read the label of the thing that you're picking up off, off the, the shelf at the grocery store? You know, when I remember the first time I did Whole30, you know, which was, I guess this was like 2019, um, Man, I was just floored by the amount of products that have added sugar to them. You know, cans of tomatoes. There's added sugar. It's like it's in. It's it's just snuck in. You know, just hiding in all kinds of food, hiding in food that looks like it's healthy. Yeah. You know, I mean, just read some labels. Avoid added sugar. Easy. You know, pretty simple. Is there anything I mean, else that you avoid other than sugar? Yes, I avoid alcohol. Um, I avoid grains and I don't, I don't consider, I don't, you know, not drink ever. Um, I, I will enjoy a, you know, nip of tequila here and there, or, you know, I've will have certainly consumed some zesties this year, you know, like it's, we make them, I, I believe in them. Um, I don't drink them every day. I don't drink them every week. I don't drink, you know, I might not drink in the course of a month. Um, so alcohol, sugar, grains. Um, those are things that, that, um, don't work for me. And those are things that seed oils, removing, removing those four things from my diet. Um, basically anything that, you know, isn't evolutionarily appropriate to a human. Like, um, they don't, those, if I removed those things from my diet, which I did, I've seen great results. My testosterone levels are right where they should be. You know, my, my lipids are great. My, I'm no longer pre-diabetic. Like everything is what, you know, I, 
I'm happy with the way I look and perform. You know, I'm mentally clear, you know, and it's because I don't eat sugar, processed sugar, high fructose corn syrup, sucrose, you know, I don't eat sugar. I don't consume any grains, don't drink alcohol. And uh, yeah, I mean, those are, and, and I definitely don't eat any seed oils. I mean, those, those four things, they made a huge difference in my life. Um, but you know, you do you, <laughs> you know, if, if, if that doesn't work for you, if, you know, eating raw liver, like doesn't float your boat, like, um, that's cool, you know, do your thing, like whatever makes you happy, but just be intentional about it. I mean, sounds cliche, but have a, eat for a purpose, right? You for know, sure. like be and measure it, keep track, see what you're doing. You know, it don't have to be in. You know, it doesn't have to be every single calorie is, is watched, but know what food does to you. Like it'll, your body is a great indicator of if your diet is working for you or not. It's like, it tells you. I mean, for sure. You probably experienced that. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you know? definitely. Every time I uh, drink milk, <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Yeah. Probably because it's pasteurized. That could be. That could be. Still looking for a good uh, under the table source of raw milk. Actually, raw milk is legal in Montana. Yeah, thanks to thanks David, to right? our buddy David <laughs> yeah. and and the hard work of uh, his team and all the uh, legislators. Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful for him for sure. For sure. Well, and like you said, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to be puritanical about no. it. It's like if you can make a one percent improvement, you're going to experience that one percent improvement and if it's significant enough to you and you make a few more of those, I think, you know, it can build up to be something that's really quite significant. So, and don't be afraid to talk to your like friends and family about it. I think that was like, that's the, that's the, that's a really tricky chasm to cross, you know, being open and honest with the people that are close to you because it's like, it might drive some people away. You know, it really, it, it can rub people the wrong way. Um, so figure out a way to like have these conversations with your family. For sure. You know, at least the people that are close to you, you know, yeah. people that, are, that may, may listen to you. Well, this conversation may rub some people the wrong way. We're about to find out. <laughs> yeah. Put it on the internet for all the world to yeah. see. Uh, Griff, if uh, people wanted to check out Zesty or follow you online, where do they do that? Um, Zesty Bev, at Zesty Bev on Instagram is um, going to get you, you know, most of the things that, that, that our organization believes are important from a beverage perspective. <laughs> Just a beverage perspective. For now. <laughs> <laughs> Time will tell. You have to check it out to find out. Griff, thanks for the thanks, conversation. Thanks, brother. Man. Appreciate you, man. Love lot, you, buddy. A lot of fun. Love you too. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.